Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about books we love about music. From pristine first editions to dog-eared, well-thumbed, passed-around favourites. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Today's guest is a West Midlands-based musician, author and journalist. She grew up in Wolverhampton in the 90s and 2000s. In her teens, she loved Destiny's Child and TLC and then discovered Emo, the AAS, Funeral for a Friend, Bikini Kill and The Distillers, among others. After university on the outskirts of London in Kingston, she moved to Brixton, where she got involved in the local DIY scene, forming the black feminist punk band Big Joni with friends Shardine Taylor-Stone and Estella Adieri in 2013. She also became a journalist for Vice, Galdem, The Guardian, Y Magazine, The Enemy, The Quietus, and many other titles. Her 2021 book, Why Solange Matters, published by Faber, beautifully chronicled the life and musical adventures of one of her favourite artists, Solange Knowles, against the backdrop of her own upbringing. I absolutely love her writing and her music, so I'm very pleased to welcome the fantastic Stephanie Phillips. Hi Steph, how are you doing? And where are you today? Hi, I'm good, thanks. I'm currently in Birmingham, um, in near Moseley, so just enjoying my time here <laughs> outside of London. Ha- yeah, having a it's it's nice enjoying time outside of London. I I absolutely get that as somebody who's escaped <laughs> as well. Um, uh, how's your summer going? Are you having a bit of respite between all those uh, festival dates? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, this year was our first Glastonbury, and we really enjoyed um, just kind of taking in everything about Glastonbury I'd never been before so we were all kind of Glastonbury virgins and just kind of amazed at kind of the vastness of it all. (laughs) So how did you approach it did you have your uh, you know your well-packed rucksack or did you just you know throw yourself into it chaotically? Well we thought we're in our 30s so we're too old to camp Um, (laughs) so we kind of like dipped in and out but we did try and like see as many bands as we could and and we saw Megan the Stallion and we're just like, you know, empowered to do our own thing as women <laughs> and, um, you know, saw Diana Ross um, on the on the pyramid stage as well, which is amazing. So, oh, yeah, we tried to like take in as much as we could. No, it was pretty good. I say that from, you know, somebody who watched it from you know, the perspective of a sofa watching the TV, obviously. Um, I did mention girl groups in um, my little biography of you at the beginning as well. So seeing um, I know they, that's a big influence on you your sound and your style and you know your ethos so um seeing somebody like Diana Ross must have been very exciting it was yeah I can't remember when I first kind of got into the Supremes maybe because my mom had like a compilation of like Motown sound so um it was probably kind of through that as a teenager um but yeah I think just the concept of it just the concept of like capturing um teenagehood on record is just really interesting to me and the fact yeah. that they kind of worked so hard to do that in the 60s in a way that I guess it isn't still being doing in the same way now, maybe. I don't know. But it just sounds so freeing, like when you hear like the Crystals or, you know, the Ronettes and they're kind of like the way they're singing, it, it, you can, it sounds youthful. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I just I've, I've always loved it. Um, it's and I still love it today. And it's just it's just really like energetic. You just kind of want to kind of keep listening to it and keep following it yeah massively fresh as well um mm. when you're on tour do you keep writing and reading or do you take a bit of time off because obviously you're a journalist who kind of um does a lot in that regard too well it's it yeah it can be difficult I mean some tours 
I did try and keep writing. Um, I don't know if it was my best writing. <laughs> I don't know if it's my best work. Um, but I have tried in the past. I think it's probably better. I'm more able to focus on things when I'm off tour, when I can get back to things. And um, just having like my space around me and having like, you know, a writing desk is kind of necessary instead of kind of balancing my laptop on my van, <laughs> uh, my laptop on my van, you know. Um, but yeah, I think kind of as we're kind of going on, it's the two things seem to kind of meld a bit more, um, which is a bit odd in some ways because I always saw them as very different entities, like writing over here and being in a band over there. Um, but now they're kind of coming together in in a way that surprises me. So oh, interesting. Yeah, something to write about. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. You How about reading? Do you do you do you tend to read when you're on tour? Do you escape into books on the bus? Yeah, I try to. I, I've, you know, I think I'm always a bit of a slow reader on tour because my mind gets really distracted by, oh, what, what are we going to do tonight? What's the show like? Um, how long is it till we get there? And, you know, my legs are going numb because we've been sitting down for like four <laughs> hours or something. Um, but I do try and kind of, you know, read as I as I as much as I can on tour. Um, I think I brought like, you know, Octavia Buckler books and stuff like that on tour. Something a bit oh, right. kind of like, you know, sci-fi and kind of distracting from um, a general music world. <laughs> <laughs> Take you away from the service stations and that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, I read um, Why Solange Matters um, last year. It's brilliant. Um, it's part Thank of a you. series of books published by Faber. You're very welcome about women who are still really sidelined in music history or, you know, don't get the magazine covers or the props that they deserve. The series includes um, Marianne Faithful, Patti Smith and Karen Carpenter too. Um, tell me about how you got involved in that series and, you know, why you think it matters. I think it matters. I'm interested to know why you think it matters. Um, so I got involved through the editor, Evelyn McDonnell, and she asked me if I'd want to write about polystyrene Um and as much as I love polystyrene at the time, I knew that her daughter was working on a book and a film about her. Yeah. And I just knew that I couldn't um, do it as just as, as much as her daughter could and, and has done through the book and the film that are both out at the moment. Um, so I thought that there's probably somewhere else I could write about. And my first thought was Solange because the album hadn't been out that long, maybe a year at that point, um, but it already affected my life and other people's life so much to the point where it did deserve a retrospective it did deserve some sort of kind of deeper analysis um and also a deeper analysis of who she is as an artist that she's in a very strange position being mm. this pop star who's adjacent to the world's biggest pop star yeah and she's always kind of as big as she'll she it gets she'll always be kind of in the shadows of Beyonce her sister so Looking at that it from that perspective and kind of, you know, her having to find this kind of unconventional route towards her own journey and creativity, um, I thought that that was interesting in itself. And then looking at it through the vantage point of, you know, this is coming at the similar time as other artists were kind of exploring different, uh, exploring blackness, exploring politics, exploring kind of um race and different ways to kind of express ourselves, express kind of the world that was going on at the time, post-Black Lives Matter. Um, I thought it could be representative of a generation um, and our generation's kind of way of kind of breaking against the rules and kind of putting our stance in, out into the world. So there's so many different ways to read Solange and to kind of look into her music. And I hope I've 
tried to cover that in in the book oh definitely and you get the real you know kind of idea of epiphany when you find um an artist that you really respond to you know through your writing and enthusiasm and when you see her live um and how you've taken that on you know her ideas and spirit and energy on you know yourself as a musician you know it's really really fantastic read I've been recommending it to people um it's it's great in a moment we'll introduce today's book a book that really inspired you Stephanie but um first I have three questions that I give all songbook guests I know I've already mentioned some of your teenage favorites but who was the first musical artist you loved I think I'd have to say that was probably Destiny's Child. I mean, there are probably people before that, but that's the artist that kind of, it's actually still stayed with me for a long time. Um, I I think I saw them when I was maybe like 12 or 13 with my mom and auntie and my cousins at um, Birmingham Indoor Arena. Um, And I think Solandra is a backing dancer for them then as well. Right. Maybe because like Kelly broke her foot or broke her knee or something like that. Um, And yeah, I can just remember like the whole show of like the dancing and everyone standing up. And, you know, they used to do little kind of like hymn kind of like melodies and like, you know, church kind of hymns just so kind of it would get the moms and aunties into it and then there's (laughs) other stuff for the kids. Um, But yeah, I think that's kind of like still that kind of continuing on the girl groups as well. Mm. Kind of just you know, it was kind of really empowering for like, you know, an 11 year old at the time. Um, And it was really good R&B music as well. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. What what period? Is this kind of quite early on with Destiny's Child or? This was the writing of the wall period. Right. That was like the first album I got into. And then kind of the next, the Survivor album as well. So it was like those two albums. I was like, yay. Amazing. (laughs) The Survivor album reminds me of first living in London with them and um, hanging around with my dear friends Catherine and Jeanette, who I hope are listening, uh, listening to Destiny Child a lot and, uh, you know, making food and drinking cheap wine and just having a great time. (laughs) (laughs) So, who was the first writer on music that you loved? That's the thing. I I think there's so many people. Um, I mean, I definitely remember following, you know, Still following Laura Snapes' work, who's at The Garden at the moment. Um, and I was following her before when she was kind of freelancing for different places. Um, I always followed Jen Pelly um, mm. and love all of her work as well. But I think kind of the writers that made the most influence were probably the writers that I was reading when I was a teenager in, in The Enemy. So that would have been the Connor McNicholas editor era. So I think I was reading like Mark Beaumont and like his writing was always very jazzy it was always kind of freestyle <laughs> and um and like Emily McKay um, and all of those kind of writers I mean there are so many people that were working there at that period the whole indie um landfill era <laughs> was like my, my era of reading the enemy. <laughs> and what was the first music book that you loved um so I was talking about this with a friend the other day and we realized we we both got into the same book at the same time as the teenagers but there was a YA book called Guitar Girl. I think it's by Sarah Manning. Um, And it was like about this kind of like story of like, you know, this teenage girl starts her own indie band and, you know, she dyes her hair pink and the band get really popular, but the industry is really awful and they, they, you know, they screw her over. And it's this whole like little story. Um, And that was like really, I think that was really influential for me. You know, I read it like 
once through and read it twice again and probably three times as a teenager um but just having like this little kind of insight into the music world meant I was like oh I know who to, what to avoid now when I get when I get there, <laughs> or if, I, if I ever see it um but yeah I remember kind of reading that book was kind of really influential for me so you got any have there been any lessons from that that have endured yeah don't, don't you know don't trust uh, men in suits in the music industry <laughs> 101 fantastic yeah I still don't (laughs) (laughs) now on to today's book which I first picked up I remember finding it in the shop very excitingly um, in a bookshop in Louisville Kentucky in 2014 I was on honeymoon on an American road trip (laughs) I have lots of stories from the honeymoon I also ran away from my husband for an hour to interview Justin Timberlake for Elle magazine but that's another story (laughs) back to this one this is by an artist I first fell in love with in the 1990s when she released mm. her solo debut single, Your Ghost, of the still amazing 1994 album, Hips and Makers. Although she had been around then for some years with her brilliant band, Throwing Muses. This book documents a year in her life from the spring of 1985 to the spring of 1986, when she was given a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, signed a record deal, made Throwing Muses' debut album and became a single mother at the age of 19. So quite a year. All of this is delivered in the book with candour, real delight in language and directness, and is surrounded by quotes, snatches of dialogue, and really vivid descriptions. Now, the book has had two titles, just to make this clear up front. In the UK, it was called Paradoxical Undressing. It's a wonderful metaphorical phrase. It alludes to a person becoming disoriented, aggressive and confused while suffering hypothermia, which leads them to dangerously discard their external layers. Nice metaphor there. But there's also the title, it's best known under now. It was published under this in the US and it's also available in this country now under this title, I think. Rat Girl. So the book is Rat Girl by the brilliant American musician, Kristen Hirsch. So Steph, tell us how you came upon this book in the first place. So I think at, at the time I just been getting into Throw Muses and Kristen Hirsch. I went to see her play um, somewhere in North London in Islington. It was like a free solo show. Um, I had just heard like a couple songs of Throw Muses and I thought, why not go see it? Um, and after the show, you know, I, I went to buy a, a record, her new record, and she kind of signed it and looked at me and was, you know, and it was like a nice interaction. It was only when I got home on the tube, I realised that she'd accidentally put an extra record inside it. that was like a live album with like all of her songs, like a live recording from Dublin or something like that. And it was listening to that, that free um, live album as well as her new record. I think it was a crooked album that era. Mm. Um, that really got me into her music and her work and her way of constructing language through kind of all these different kind of um, uses of her guitar in ways I'd never thought it could ha- it could exist. Really. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was kind of after that that I kind of re- uh, kind of searched out more information about her. And I think it was after that that she released Rat Girl. Um, yeah, so I've got it as Rat Girl. As the American version. With a great cover. Yeah, yeah with a cute cover. I do think, I mean, I think she prefers the paradoxical and dressing title. I do like Rap Girl, though, as well. It's quite a, a pithy title. Mm, and it's kind yeah. of referenced in different ways in terms of kind of like the Boston scene, like playing at the rat and just kind of her 
odd ways of demeaning herself as well throughout the book. <laughs> she's, a, she's an interesting artist. She kind of came up as a musician at the same time that um, sort of the grunge scene was kind of coming to life yeah. in, in America yeah. um, and also, you know, bands like the Pixies and the Breeders. You know, I, I when I first liked her, kind of had her in my head with Kim and Kelly Deal and the Breeders as well. She, they, you know, they were musicians that did what they wanted and they didn't fit into accepted narratives mm. and they were really experimental in their mm. own ways. You know, that's what I liked about her. Um, I'm guessing that's what you liked about her as well in some yeah. respects. Yeah, definitely. I think just kind of seeing those, I mean, all those artists are artists I loved and kind of found at a similar time, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I think I just, I love music that reaches reaches kind of a pop end point, but goes about it through a very unconventional way. Mm. Um, so I don't think Christian Hirsch would describe her music as pop, um, but by pop, I mean more just, it has kind of, something to grab hold of it's 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 catchy in a way that really delights your ear but it's not like you know wishy-washy pop music it's it's kind of has a bit of kind of like confusion and Mm. um depth to it um and yeah I just love that about all the throw music songs of the breeders and pixies it's you know you can't say kind of like you know songs like cannonball by the breeders isn't poppy it's it's catchy it's relevant but it's still kind of like weird <laughs> yeah it's instant but it's weird a cannibal yeah. is just you try and deconstruct that as a piece of music it's just insane yeah. um i remember i think I, when i first liked Kristen, you know throwing muses had just put out university it might have been around the time of that album from the year, 93 94 i don't know the date off the top of my head but it, um they had a song called bright yellow gun which was oh, just yeah. you know proper indie dance floor smashing swansea oh, in the really? early 1990s um but this book is based on a diary that she started when she was 18 and mm. she talks right at the beginning about wanting to hold this diary at arm's length like the first fish you shoot somebody might have caught which i love that this idea of being a bit terrified about the rawness yeah. of your teenage years you know she talks about it being you know, quite a messy diary and full of holes. And she sort of celebrates that, which I thought was interesting because, you know, as writers, you know, well, I say as writers, I'm I'm talking for myself. I always feel like those are the things you should clean or polish or hem Mm. in, even if you try and resist that. Um, Tell us about um, what you think of the style of her book, because it's very unconventional, isn't it? It is very unconventional. It's kind of weaving between different times and different kind of writing styles and, um, you know, it's kind of taking on her diary, but then it, within snippets of it, she kind of references kind of scenes from her childhood with her her mom and dad, who she calls Dude and Crane. Um, <laughs> she grew up on a hippie, I think she grew up on a hippie commune in Georgia. Yeah. That's yeah. what she references. So there's lots of kind of um, references back to that kind of era, which is very funny for for me when I was first reading it, knowing nothing about kind of what Hoofy communes were like. Yeah. It just sounds like <laughs> so she was like a little kid kind of like hanging out with these big kids. <laughs> yeah, and Alan um, Ginsberg used to pop around and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, quite far Did from you, my childhood. <laughs> I think she said, yeah, I think she says in the book he wrote her a poem, but it wasn't a very good poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like. Um, but yeah, I really love that style of, and like you said, kind of, embracing kind of like the oddness of the original diary it she doesn't really kind of shy away from it and how she was as a teenager and there are a lot of kind of moments of kind of maybe you know not having it you know 
not having a tantrum, but being a bit kind of like uh, defensive or, um, you know, showing, you know, raw emotions that she keeps in within in this kind of book and doesn't kind of erase out to kind of, you know, paint a kind of very rosy picture of herself. She was a teenager that was going through all of these life changes um, within one year. So it's going to be kind of like up and down. Um, but I kind of, the thing I love about the book is that it reflects her mental state as it's kind of going down and kind of reasserting itself and kind of still figuring herself out. And, you know, the way that the book's edited on certain pages that maybe there's kind of like one line or two lines um, mm. and just to kind of show how fragmented her thinking was at the time. Um yeah, it's, it's just a really interestingly laid out book and really kind of made me think about kind of what you can do within, with, within a page or with a page. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. No, it's really interesting. Um, do you keep diaries? Did you ever keep diaries as a teenager? You know, I thought I was a very, um, I always thought I did what I thought I should do as a teenager. So I thought I was a teenager, I should keep a diary. So I tried. I did not stick to it. I'd always, you know, start, oh, this month I'm going to, you know, keep my diary and start a diary. And mm. no, I just, I don't think I had any thoughts that were worth keeping <laughs> as a teenager. I don't I think exactly, I have any thoughts. Yeah. I did I mean, exactly I just, the same. I have one diary from, um, I think it's 93. And it's just like, you know, so-and-so beat me in maths in school and I wanted a better mark in maths. It's really boring. <laughs> I've got a great scrapbook, actually, which has got loads of newspaper cuttings about Kirk Payne's death. But it just stops oh, after gosh. that. It doesn't go oh. anywhere else. <laughs> it's just the Swansea Evening Post's take on the death of Kirk Cobain and various other. <laughs> you know, oh, everyone had to have their take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, it's based on, you know, these diaries. and It's got that kind of scrapbooky kind of um, style about it yeah. very early on you know she's talking about how songs and music made sense of her life you know she suffers a concussion in a car accident when she's a kid and she believed the songs that she wrote herself were psychic revelations and she talks really mystically about songs I'm interested to know what you think about that as somebody who writes songs you know I'm, I'm always fascinated by you know, when musicians say, you know, I just woke up and this song came into my head or it mm-hmm. was just something like I plucked out the universe. Um, did that chime with you, the idea of these songs being, I don't know, kind of these p- peculiar, you know, visitations or or anything like that? I mean, I I get the, I understand the need to have some sort of explanation because most of the time there isn't an explanation. It just kind of is about the room that you're in or the the state of mind you're in and what chord chimes with your brain and what sound comes out of your mouth that you kind of think it sounds like and you know that's usually kind of if you want to break it down what happens with a song um but it can be boring to say that so Mm -hmm. finding a way to explain the irrational is a very rational process 
Um, and her, her way of explaining it does make sense to me. I mean, I think thinking, seeing it as something that's kind of imposed on you instead of kind of something you're, you're in, in control of um, can make you feel, can make you have a bit more control in a way because it's, you know, it's not something that you can maintain. It's something that someone else is doing and, you know, you're, it's nothing to do with you, which um, I think gave her a lot of strength maybe as a songwriter at that time, maybe, and kind of mm. still does. Um but yeah, it's it's interesting kind of to read the book and to see kind of other people's interpretations of it because I guess her bandmates take that on and you know she told them she went to a house, um, she got hit by a car and that's when she started hearing songs and they got worse when she kind of went to this um, legendary haunted house, the, the dog mm. house, and just everything kind of went kind of chaotic from that time and you know they just say okay well that probably happened and you know get on with playing their songs and mm. supporting her and writing the you know making the band happen um but it's only when she's kind of then seen by kind of professionals and um, mental health experts that kind of lay out to the you know this is probably something else and a symptom of um what they called bipolar disorder at that time but yeah kind of the rational their rational um kind of way of looking at it actually kind of deflates kind of the magic of the her songs sometimes so maybe you do have to kind of just live in the irrational yeah, it, you know, it gets pathologized, um, although it's sort of accepted within mm. her, her band and her circle of friends. I find it interesting, you know, thinking of Throwing Muses and the kind of, you know, female core of it. Um, you know, obviously early on with um, you know, her half-sister Tanya Donnelly, who, you know, a lot of people from, you know, my generation remember her from, you know, Belly and the hits that they had in the early 90s. Mm. But um, I thought it might, must be interesting, you know, um, revisiting it in recent weeks having been in a band you know with this female core to it but was that something you responded to yeah I think it's interesting I mean I guess it depends on the generation I mean reading the book it's interesting her her kind of interpretation of journalists asking about being women in bands and she kind of is quite you know really hated kind of answering those questions and having to think about her gender in that sense um, I guess when they started the band, it was just kind of, we're starting a band and who cares if we're women or who, whatever. Um, I think kind of now me looking back at it, um, I mean, it is it is empowering. It is kind of amazing to see that kind of this was kind of like a, a kind of multi-gender band, and, and, yeah. you know, and also Leslie being a black woman playing bass um, in this band as well. Um and I think the band's always had a PSC member for, throughout their kind of history as well on bass. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see in kind of that sense as kind of a, a black punk myself. Um, but yeah, I think kind of now at this point in kind of music, I, I couldn't imagine playing music without being with women. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I've, I've never played really with, with any men, I, except for one band with my ex-boyfriend and that didn't last very long. Um <laughs> For obvious reasons um <laughs> but I just no I, I don't I don't want to I don't I don't think it's not something I want to do <laughs> do you not want to do it because because you really enjoy it because being with other women feels creative or no I I, I similarly kind of really get nervous yeah. asking these questions because you know women can, is a word that contains multitudes obviously yeah I think I mean it's just because what is to me it's like why should I I mean, yeah. men, there there are all male bands that have existed throughout time, and they don't 
think about including women in their band. So why should I think about including them in mine? Yeah. It just doesn't really make any sense unless there's some sort of amazing male musician. I don't think that they exist. That's more amazing than (laughs) any other woman. Um, But to me, at this this moment in time, there are so many amazing women. There are so many kind of uh, creative women. uh, And they're kind of just all begging to be in bands and to start things and to, you know, and they want to kind of do things that are different as well, which is really important to me, not doing the same thing over and over again. That there's there's just no point <laughs> speaking to men. <laughs> it is quite interesting thinking, you know, early on in my career, if I interviewed a, you know, a woman, um, I would always ask her questions about gender. And it was probably mm. because I felt like it was, I was excited to ask a woman questions about gender because a lot of the people I interviewed, you know, weren't women, I guess. Yeah. Or, or not a lot, I, no, that's... That's not quite true. I was often asked by certain titles um, just to interview women, <laughs> not men, yeah. which annoyed me in different ways. Um, but um, <laughs> then I, I think the tide turned to me when I started asking men the kind of questions that women are, you know, asked. You know, do you want to have children? <laughs> do you want to? Do you know? Um, what's it? You know, what's it like to be a man in music? You know, mm. um, I've, I've, I, 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 I turned things around. It was quite funny, but um, I yeah. loved that. Um, I saw, I've seen Self Esteem um, play live a few times recently. And in one of the gigs, all the band wore a t shirt that said, What's it like to be a woman in music on it? And I want one of those t shirts. Oh, well, <laughs> oh, cool. I still haven't seen her live yet. But yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's different for every woman in music, I would say. Yeah, of course. For me personally, I, I, I feel a lot. I feel a lot better being able to kind of talk about my gender and to be around other women um, and to have that space for myself. For someone else, it would be completely different and I I would respect that as well. Um, But yeah, for me personally, at this moment, um, yeah, it's just like, I I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear music by men at this very, at this particular venture. (laughs) There's also great stuff about female friendship in this book as well. Um, I love that there's this friendship between Kristen and this Hollywood actress, Betty Hutton, who had been really huge in Annie Get Your Gun. She's a mature student at the college Kristen's studying at. She wears rhinestone studded turquoise cowboy boots, combs her white hair straight up, smokes menthol cigarettes, Um, would come to Kristen's shows with her priest. You know, these some amazing kind of multi-generational friendships in here. And female friendship is something I love to read about in music books when it appears. Mm. You know, I really enjoyed uh, Tracy Thorne's recent book, um, My Rock and Roll Friend, which when she talks um, in which she talks about her friendship with Lindy Morrison from The Go-Betweens. Mm. Um, you know, I thought that was really a great bit. Um, also, you know, Kristen is a total DIY hero. Mm. Um I first interviewed her in the late 2000s, just after she'd set up Cash Music, um, her website through which her fans could pay directly for music and gig tickets. Um, I found a quote from it looking earlier on. Um, she said this about um, setting something up that was DIY like that. It's everything. I'm not asked to do photo shoots in underpants anymore, nor am I getting my eyebrows plugged six or seven times a day and wondering what the hell is my job now? <laughs> um, I was wondering if you know that's something that inspires you you know her DIY you know take on everything you know the way she she'll release albums that also have accompanying books she's you know she's written books about a really great book about motherhood she's written a children's Mm -hmm. book she's um she does lots of different projects she's got other bands like 50 foot wave this she doesn't seem to want to 
you know, curate her career, you know, I hate the word curate, but curate it in this very commercial, expected way. She's doing all these different things, you know, um, as a role model, how do you respond to those elements of her? I mean, I think it's so amazing, so exciting to kind of see someone taking control of the rest of their career. Um, for a lot of artists that were on major labels from that era, it can be hard to kind of figure out the next step so you can continue both making music, but also kind of making enough money to survive and to kind of pay your rent, to pay your mortgage. Um, but I think she's kind of been quite um, forthright in her kind of like view that, you know, actually I need to be in control of what, what I sound like and, you know, who my audience is and, um, and how I'm going to kind of approach this. So, yeah, it's amazing to see kind of like this kind of different way of kind of existing in an industry that can be quite, you know, harmful to women, but also harmful to women over a certain age. Mm, Definitely. Um, The fact that she mixes up her writing and her songs as well made me think of when Big Joni's debut album, Sisters, came out. You know, it came out with a fanzine as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah. um, The Daydream Library series. You know, that um, approach, does that make you think of other projects you could do? You know, have you got lots of ideas of, you know, ways you could take um, Big Joni? I mean, yeah, I think that we're kind of, as a band, all thinking about the different kind of like ways we could different roads we could travel down um for ourselves as kind of as a as an entire unit and as kind of individuals so um definitely writing will hopefully play a part in the future again um I'm hoping we can kind of you know expand our world as kind of musicians and to kind of go down different paths that people might not expect us to go down um and also just to try new things I mean Everything feels quite scary, but I think there's there's always something new that you can try in this in this arena, um, because you know it's it just feel like you know the conventional path just isn't going to work anyway. So you might as well go the the you know less well travelled route. Definitely, and um, you're reading this again now after you know a, a good few years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just interesting to think that in the woman Kristen is now is. Uh, still has that sort of spirit and energy um you know obviously she's she's a lot older she's got um four kids you know she's kind of uh in her 50s but I Mm. I saw her on a recent tour in uh Club Yvobach in Cardiff and you know the energy was still just absolutely screaming off the stage it was fantastic yeah no yeah I, I saw her quite recently as well um in Birmingham and yeah there's there's still kind of so much that she clearly wants to do do and wants to achieve and that's amazing to see kind of just someone enjoying themselves on stage just in general yeah she's a great great um you know the phrase role model is sort of dangerous in various ways but if you know if there are good role models and it's people like that who just you know surprise you and challenge you and uh, entertain you all the time but um I'm gonna basically direct everybody listening to kind of go and grab a copy and you know delve into it because it is fascinating there's the most amazing yeah. description of childbirth I think I've ever read in a book there's uh, yeah. some brilliant um details of you know the places she's lived the places she hangs out you know really colorful descriptions and like um, descriptions of how she kind of wrote some songs so like yes <laughs> how did I you think, find those I loved it it was just like a little kind of like insight of like oh it was that simple her meeting a preacher on the street one day and her him giving her the line for um 
I hate my way. Um, so kind of, you know, he was like, oh, don't you hate God? Don't you hate Hitler? And that, those all became like lines for um, a song, Hate My Way, and then kind of def- uh, later on kind of transformed into kind of this like weird second part as well. But yeah, I just love hearing those little stories. What were the other bits of the book that you really loved? I loved kind of like her earliest descriptions of kind of her her life kind of just, you know, going from place to place and kind of understanding why she was, the, she, why she's always been this kind of traveling musician that doesn't have, you know, one particular home or the other. She kind of has so much energy on the road. Um, and so kind of her being a teenager, kind of, you know, finding, staying at one person's like, old house one one day and staying on someone else's floor the next day which is normal to her because that's kind of like her way of being really um and I love the descriptions of the Boston music scene that she get moves to with the band as well and kind of seeing how kind of like communal that scene was as well which is kind of similar to the London punk scene as well. Why did you choose um this book today as well Stephanie? Um I mean, I guess I chose Rat Girl because of all the books that I've read, it was the one, one of the first books that really taught me so much more about an artist that I loved um, and changed the way that I thought uh, a book could be laid out and could be written. Um, it's so emotional and so personal um, and so kind of um, adaptable to any person or any situation. Um, I just love reading it over and over again, and I would recommend it to anyone else. It's interesting how it's like one year of her life as well, which, uh, you know, I know we we are in the era now, actually, where there are lots of memoirs of artists that go up to the moment where they, you know, start to become famous or they sign mm-hmm. a record deal or whatever. But this is, and this is like that a little bit, but the fact that it's just this one crucial year, but this year that has had a, an impact on the rest of her life is quite an interesting way to slice through, you know, your memories of yourself and your identity. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's kind of, it makes a lot of sense in a way. And it seems like it wasn't kind of such an impactful year, because I'm sure I read that the diary actually got lost a long time ago when she's, her New Orleans house got flooded. So she just remembered the diary of heart by heart, because it was just so she'd read it so many times, it was so important to her that year. Um, but yeah, I always like reading about kind of artists that are going through um, difficult moments in their career and kind of see, just seeing how they deal with it or seeing how they kind of come come through things. Um, it may not be something that, you know, you go through personally, but kind of mm. see, having a reference for something you can deal with and knowing that people can get through things is just always really helpful as well. Even if it's a life that's a... Uh... Yeah, it involves Alan Ginsberg popping around your house and writing a terrible poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Stephanie, for sharing Rat Girl slash Paradoxical Undressing with me. Now, to finish the podcast, I'd love a few more recommendations from you. Uh, firstly, are there any other songbooks, as I'm calling them, that you want to mention today to us that you think are worth us buying and reading? Or sure. getting from your local library, as I used to do in my teens or whatever. Yes, yeah, get them from the library as well. Um, I definitely recommend um, Jen Pelly's book on the raincoats. Yeah, um, that was quite a big influence on my um, book, Why Solange Matters, and um, I love her kind of like her way of encapsulating. It could have just been like a general book about an album, but it felt a bit more, a lot more kind of 
personal and um, included a lot more stories from the raincoats themselves as well as kind of the people they've influenced. So um, I really enjoyed that book. Um, I really love Girls to the Front by Sarah Marcus, which is about the Riot Girl scene, um, just because I really love Riot Girl. And I thought that was just a great retrospective on um, this really important moment in like music history that was quite short lived, but I think still influences a lot of young people today. Um, and other than that, um, the book What Are You Doing Here by Lena Dawes, um, which is a really interesting book about um, black women in the metal scene. Um, oh, wow. and was kind of like a scene that I didn't think about at the time when I first heard about it and kind of learning about her experiences and different people's experiences um, really opened my eyes about kind of what's going on in kind of these kind of adjacent music scenes. Oh, fantastic. I haven't read that one. That sounds mm. great. And um, the Jen Pelly is great. And Jen and Liz Pelly being, you know, these two you know, sister colossuses of American yeah. music journalism. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the Raincoats was from the 33 and a third series, wasn't it? Yes, so, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. And that um, just definitely had an influence on you know, that uh, different ways of writing about albums, of course. Um, yes, thank you for those. Um, and finally, um, given that music is at the heart of this podcast, we'd like you to recommend a book song for us, a song that you love inspired by a work of literature. Um, <laughs> anything is allowed. What have you got for us? Well, this is the thing, because like, I'm sure most songs are inspired by literature, but then it's like thinking about which ones, which one will work. <laughs> I'm sure everyone said Wuthering Heights, but um, I'm going to go with um, Angeline by PJ Harvey oh, um, from her nice. Is This Desire album. Um, because I think a lot of that album was inspired by stories and by literature. Um, and I think it was quite a lot by um, J.D. Salinger as well. Um, I think it's kind of a specific line, like Pretty Mouth and Green My Eyes was inspired by J.D. Salinger. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I love everything PJ Harvey, but um, I'm really kind of getting back into that album as well again. Oh, fantastic. And there's another writer who's, um, you know, the music, the poetry yeah. now everything yeah dream dream future podcast guest uh if you're listening polly <laughs> yeah, yeah i, I could um, do it yeah do you reckon yeah come on polly you, you, you can do it thanks so much um stephanie it's been lovely to talk to you good luck um for the rest of your busy gigging summer hope you get some chance to you know sit back and read at some point <laughs> <laughs> i hope so too <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you so much and thanks to you listeners um whether you be on your commute in the kitchen in the car i'm chuffed that you're listening i'm feeling in the mood now to go and turn up big Joni and Kristen very loud and take that collective spirit of diy and go off and start even more adventures which i probably shouldn't because i'm too busy but there we are i hope to see you all next week with another great guest for our next noisy episode of songbook Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones, and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening.